Jesus was and is a very divisive person. He aroused strong reactions as he preached the coming of the kingdom and healed people of their various diseases. But it was his own teaching and self-understanding that continues the division even to this day. Uh, today we're looking at the second half of Matthew chapter 9. Uh, just as we had it read a few moments ago, pages 981 and 982. And it introduced to us the disciples sent out by Jesus in chapter 10, though we'll look at that next time. Today I want to look at three things. The contrasts, Jesus' assessment, and then the division that Jesus always brings to people. Uh, Jesus is a man of very strong contrasts. And nowhere is this taught more forcefully than in this little passage when he speaks about the joy of the new age in verses 14 to 17 of chapter 9. The disciples of John the Baptist didn't understand Jesus. They noticed that Jesus didn't encourage or teach fasting like their teacher John did or like the Pharisees did. John had preached the coming of the kingdom of God and called the nation to prepare by repentance and therefore fasting. For fasting goes with repentance. Fasting's a, a, a funny thing in the scriptures. Some people get very caught up on the idea of fasting, but fasting is a way of being too sick of heart to be interested in food, being so sad, so downcast, so moved that you've got no way of, of feasting. When we celebrate, we celebrate by eating. We, we cook up a large amount of food, excessive amount of food, and the kind of food we cook up is not necessarily the healthiest food, the most enjoyable food is what... That's how we celebrate things, and when we're not celebrating, when it's the exact reverse of celebration, that's when we, we don't eat. We can't eat for we're heartbroken. John came preaching the message of repentance, and with it went fasting. The Pharisees... They had all manner of rules and regulations about fasting, all bits and pieces of the law they could stitch together, whereby when you fast, how you fast, how much you fast, and what you fast. But Jesus didn't seem to fast at all, nor did he teach his disciples to fast. Jesus' response highlighted the difference between himself and John and the contrast between himself and uh, the Pharisees. You see, he was not like John, because though he preached the same message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent, believe the gospel, he bought the kingdom of heaven with him. He was the bridegroom at the wedding. John may have been the best man, but he was never the bridegroom. John may have encouraged the people to wait till the party starts, but Jesus was the reason for the party. His arrival is no time to mourn or to fast. His arrival is the time to rejoice and to celebrate, to feast and to enjoy. When he leaves, well, that would be the time to fast. When he's taken away, as he describes it, a hint of what is going to happen to him in his crucifixion, in his death, that would be a time to fast. But as long as he is with us, it's the time for feasting. In the meantime... 
while he's here, now it's rejoicing. Well, of course, we live after the death and after the resurrection of Jesus. Is this the time for fasting or is this the time for feasting? Well, if you believe in the resurrection, this is the time for feasting. For lo, I am with you, said Jesus, even to the end of the age. The victory has been won in his death. And Christianity is the great religion of joy. The one great emotion that the scriptures keeps teaching us is joy. As Paul said to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say to you, rejoice. We are the people of song and of joy because we are the people of salvation. We're the people of forgiveness and mercy and pardon. We're the people of new life, of regeneration. Christianity should be a joyful, not a sad religion. Oh, there's moments to be sad for death is still here. There are moments when we face death in the death of our relatives, the death of our friends, the death of a spouse, and they are really sad times. There are moments when we are saddened by our own continued sinfulness. But in general, we're the people who live steadfast in the hope of the resurrection of the Lord of ourselves through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we do not grieve as others grieve who have no hope. We are the people of joy for our bridegroom is with us always. Jesus was also not like the Pharisees. He couldn't be fit into their form of Judaism. It would be like trying to attach a new cloth to an old or putting new wine into old wineskins. There was no way that you could accommodate him inside the old ways. He came to so live in such a way that the old ways would be totally destroyed. The contrast is too great. What he came to do was not what they were doing. And the two views were incompatible. So here is again a little warning of the division that Jesus was provoking then, a division that could be seen even in today's world. And then you come to a series of healing events. The raising of the ruler's daughter and then over the page the, the healing of the woman with the flow of blood and then the, the healing of the two blind men and the exorcising of the man who couldn't speak. And then the summary, verse 35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Uh, each of these recorded healings had its own particular emphasis. The cleansing power of Jesus, who was able to touch the legally unclean, but instead of being contaminated and defiled by what he touched, it was the exact reverse. That which he touched was purified and cleansed. The bleeding woman, the dead girl. Now, the Pharisees would never touch the dead, that would defile them. The Pharisees would never touch anybody who was bleeding, that would defile them. Jesus touches and they're cleansed. The blind men who couldn't see they could still see more clearly than the Pharisees as to who Jesus was. The mute man whose exorcism led him to speak and whose healing brought such astonishment, never, it says, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Uh, but each of the healings have certain things in common. Each of them is addressing the spiritually disabling effect of illness. 
You see, these people were not just physically ill, they were spiritually, ritually unclean. They were all unable to enter the temple. This poor woman would never be accepted into her community or into her family, always living under the suggestion that she actually was being condemned by God. Yet Jesus brings salvation to her as he brings salvation to each of these people. And the healings are by the power of his word, even more than his touch. So the woman touches and he is, she is healed, but Jesus prevents superstition, emphasising that it is belief in him. It is the woman's faith in him in verse 21. It's the blind man's faith in him in verse 29. And each shows that Jesus has astonishing power over the forces of evil and the forces of death that are at work in this world at the moment. But it's the responses that I want to draw your attention to today. For although faith is the primary response that Jesus is calling for and looking for and expecting, there are other responses revealed and they drive the events forward to the cross. Uh, there's the very natural response of spreading the news. Um, there could be no way that a resurrection would happen without the news spreading far and wide. I mean, the little girl was dead. The more were there, they'd all seen her. They were just getting ready for the funeral. And we read in verse 26, after Jesus had healed the little girl, raised her up, and the report of this went through all that district. I bet it did. And I bet it went a lot further too. Who would not speak of such a thing? It didn't prove that Jesus was God. We mustn't jump too quickly and too far to say, oh, well, that proves who he is. I mean, the prophet Elijah, the prophet Elisha saw resurrections from the dead, if you remember. That didn't prove they were God. Mind you, prophets like Elijah and Elisha don't turn up every day. Uh, in fact, they lived 800 years or so in the 8th century BC. They lived 750 years, 800 years before Jesus did this. Uh, when we read our Bibles, we sometimes lose historical perspective. You know, they do this on this page and this happens on this page. There's only a few pages between them, aren't they? And so we forget there's 800 years between them. I went to the Tower of uh, London once with my children and we heard one of those beef eaters describing in grisly detail all the executions that had happened inside the Tower of uh, the London Tower, this one, this one, this one, and it really sounded like a dreadful place, not a place you'd like to be. In fact, we, we should move on fairly quickly because if we're not caught up in the next execu execution, we'll at least be seeing it, uh, possibly ourselves. So I was about to move my children along from this grisly tale till suddenly the, the pennies dropped. Over what period of time did all these executions happen? Because there were 20 or 25 executions over a thousand year period. They weren't popping off every day of the week. The fact that he could pop them off in a few sentences didn't mean that it was happening all the time. There were resurrections in the Bible but they are very few and far between Elijah and Elisha. And hundreds of years later, Jesus. But it was extraordinary when it happened. And the news would spread. Everybody was talking about it. Similarly, there was no way to stop the two blind men from telling their story far and wide. Jesus warned them very strongly not to talk. They couldn't shut up, could they? 
Could you? Would you? Obviously, I wouldn't. I talk too much. There's no way that a talkative person could possibly have held in the information that I was blind and now I can see. And so they spread his fame through the whole district as we read in verse 31. But they went and spread his fame throughout all that district. Furthermore, Jesus didn't stop doing the miracles. It wasn't as if he raised a little girl, he healed two blind men and then he retired. No, no, Jesus pressed on, keeping on doing it. Wherever he went, he was teaching and preaching about the coming of the kingdom of God and healing and exorcising. But it was in the response to Jesus' miracles that we see the greatest contrast. You see it there in verses 33-34. And when the demons, demon had been cast out of the mute man, spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. The crowd's acclamation knows no bounds. Never before has anything been like this, been in Israel. He gives sight to the blind. He gives speech to the mute. He casts out demons. He raises the dead. <laughs> Never seen anything like it. This is something new in Israel. This is, not, this is so new it's not going to fit into the old wineskins of Israel. We're going to have to reevaluate everything that is happening. This is so marvellous that it's no time for fasting. Salvation has arrived. It's arrived in our land. Let us rejoice and be glad. This is the day the Lord has made. But the Pharisees' condemnation couldn't be more damning. He cast out demons by the prince of demons. There, I'm sure there's no doubt that he's doing these miracles. But check out the source of his power. Couldn't be God. It's not God. It's the evil one. He himself is demonic. You can't actually move much further apart than those two views, can you? You can't move much further away from the claim for divinity than the claim of demonization. But that was the Pharisees' view of Jesus. Because there's no middle ground with Jesus. He is of God. For if he's not of God, then what are we seeing here? It's not natural. It's supernatural. If it's not God, what other supernatural force have you got available to you? If it is God, we should follow him. We're not going to follow him. He's destroying Pharisaism. There's no way we're going to give up Pharisaism and follow him. And so, if he's wrong... And it's supernatural. There's only one person left on the scene, isn't there? It's demoniac. It's the demons. It's the prince of the demons he's doing it by. And into this contrast of opinion about him, we have Jesus' assessment, his own judgment of what was happening, his own assessment of what it all means, his own self-awareness of the meanings of these actions. For he read, we read that Jesus looked at the crowds and had compassion. He saw the struggle of their lives under the tyranny of Rome, under the tyranny of evil, under sickness, under death, under the judgment of God. My friends, it's great news. Great news that's so great and we're so Christianized we just take it for granted. 
It's great news that our Lord and Saviour, like his Father in heaven, is full of compassion and kindness. We live in a world that's still full of pain and sickness, difficulty and sorrow and suffering. And frankly, death is never that far away from us, is it? It's important to be reminded that God knows this and that his loving compassion is not unmoved by our plight, just the reverse. Because of our plight, he sent his one and only son into this world to destroy the works of the devil. He cares, he loves, he sees our problem and he is acting to solve it. But Jesus' assessment of the nation Israel was more specific than that and more prophetic. For he saw in Israel, he saw them as the harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd. This was a standard Old Testament cliche for Israel. For the judgment of God was always to scatter people as the salvation of God is to gather people. It goes right back to the Tower of Babel when God scattered the nations. But it runs all the way through the Old Testament that the judgment of God is to scatter people. And so they were scattered into the exile in Babylon and they were dispersed. In fact, the dispersion is a way of talking about Israel under judgment. Just as the salvation of God was always to gather people back into the promised land to make them one tribe, one nation, one people, all gathered together under one king. That's salvation. Indeed, that's the meaning of the word church. The word church means a gathering. We, we who are saved are gathered together by God into his gathering. But it's not just a standard cliche. This is an allusion back to, the, to, to Ezekiel 34. There the people of Judah had been scattered Scattered by the Babylonians on this occasion. Scattered, though, as part of the judgment of God on their wickedness. Scattered because the shepherds were not good shepherds. They didn't care for the sheep. They were selfish shepherds, caring only for themselves, lining their own pockets, making themselves wealthy, enjoying the fruit, but not actually doing any of the work. They didn't care for the lost sheep of Israel. They didn't even care for the ones who weren't lost yet, who were just around. They just fattening the sheep up for the kill. So the people of God had nobody to defend them or to lead them into better pastures. They were all vulnerable to whatever wild dog, lion, wolf, Babylonian cared to come by. So God promised. God promises in Ezekiel 34. It's a wonderful chapter. It lies behind John 10 and the Good Shepherd passage. God promised that he would come and shepherd his sheep himself. He would establish his kingdom and he would appoint one shepherd over all his people, his own son, David. And no longer would the sheep be left leaderless. No longer would they be scattered. No longer would they fight amongst themselves because there would be a shepherd who would govern them and rule them and care for them. Jesus knew that he was to be the shepherd, the good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. And then he chooses, then he chooses a different farming illustration. 
that of a plentiful harvest. Uh, it's again an image of contrast. For the harvest is again such a cliche of judgment. It's the time for separating the wheat from the chaff. It's the time to rejoice in the crops and to burn the useless. It's a time when justice will come and vindication will arrive, where some will be saved and others will be damned. But Jesus' assessment doesn't focus on the judgment element, though the judgment of God on false shepherds is there in Ezekiel 34. Jesus' assessment focuses on the plentiful nature of the harvest. You see, you can look out at the harvest and say, we're going to have a big bonfire. Or you can look out at the harvest and say, we're going to have a big crop. It's a certain kind of negativity that looks at the harvest and ignores the crop for the sake of the bonfire of the shaft that's coming. And yet, that is how the Pharisees would look at it. They'd look at the crop and say, gee, there's a lot of tears out there. There's a lot of chaff out there. We're really going to have to do a lot of... Whereas Jesus was looking at the crop and saying, look at the wheat ready for harvest. Look at the ears that are full for harvest. All is not lost in Israel. There are many that could be won into the kingdom. It just requires the hard work of many labourers to secure the plentiful harvest. And so he prays, verse 36, when he saw the crowds he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the labourers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labourers into the harvest, which is the introductory verse for what happens immediately next in chapter 10, when he calls the ten disciples and sends them out into the harvest. But more of that next time. This is a passage that emphasises the healing, saving work of the coming of the Messiah and the Kingdom of God, the compassion of Jesus upon people who are so scattered and vulnerable. It's one of the great motivations for evangelism. Sure, we can look on our society around about us and see that the judgment is still here by the sinful way in which they're living and that the judgment is necessary for justice ever to be done in this land. We can see, though, the people as confused and bewildered and we can see it in judgmental terms, confused and bewildered by their prosperity and the freedoms that they have been given. We can see thousands lost and confused, unhappy souls sinning against each other and being sinned against. Sure, the leaders of our society are still more given to lining their own pockets than caring for the needs of other people. Growing lands more and more, owning more and more houses, building up greater and greater portfolios of their own wealth while ignoring the needs of people who are in desperate need for simple living. But Jesus looked not with judgment. Jesus looked with compassion. Not with hostility, but with love. And he saw at his moment of time before the dreadful day came, there was still opportunity. There's still opportunity to save some. There's still opportunity to bring some in. 
And so he asked his disciples to pray for the labourers that a plentiful harvest might be brought in before it was too late. So we see that when the disciples were sent out, it was in the context of this contrast. The world's assessment, especially the Pharisees, and Jesus' assessment of what is happening. John the, disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, they didn't understand what was happening. Only Jesus really understood what was happening. And his assessment put him in stark contrast to everybody else. For his assessment, this was a moment of salvation as we await the inevitable judgment. And so with the judgment and the salvation in the air, we see Jesus bringing division the kind of division that he still brings to this day. For Jesus is somebody who is not easily tolerated in his day or in ours. His claims about himself are too great and his claims over our lives are too great to simply ignore him as a harmless, gentle healer of the first century. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It doesn't actually fit. He's not just bringing salvation, but bringing it under the threat of the coming judgment. He's not just bringing a teaching, he's bringing a whole new way of understanding. He's not just seeking the lost, he's sending out others to multiply his work and to bring as many in as is possible. He's not just improving the lot of people, fixing up this problem, fixing up that problem, He's bringing in a whole new age, one that the old world would never fit into. If Jesus came to solve the problem of a, a mute man and a couple of blind people and a little girl who died and a woman with flow of blood, he didn't do much. Uh, go to a big hospital today and healings, many more than that, are happening daily in our world. If that's all Jesus came to do, it wasn't much, but that's not it. Those are but the symbol, those are but the tip of the iceberg of what is happening. The kingdom of God is arriving on earth. A whole new world, a whole new kingdom has come. And so he's bringing the end to the religious leaders of the past, the godly John the Baptist, the ungodly Pharisees. They're both coming to an end. The godly John the Baptist who called to repentance and moved the crowds to fasting and sackcloth and ashes, so to speak, that's coming to an end. The ungodly Pharisees who teaching of the law bound people up into terrible legal knots and rules and regulations, that's coming to an end. All those things are gone with the coming of the Saviour. Even if his message started out with repentance, it followed through with salvation. Forgiveness, pardon, mercy. For he was the bridegroom who brought the party of salvation. Every time we come to church, we confess our sins. If you don't, check out which church you're going to. And we confess our sins. But the big thing is not that we come and confess our sins. The big thing is that we come and confess our sins and have forgiveness declared to us and can stand up and say, Hallelujah, we are saved, we are rescued. 
Even though I am a sinful wretch, yet I am pardoned, I am forgiven, I am washed clean. Jesus' claims are outlandish, even blasphemous, unless they're true. And here's the division that Jesus causes. For if his claims are true, then all other religions are false. Even the best of them in Judaism is inadequate. Now, the atheists must be wrong, but so are the Buddhists and the Hindus and the Muslims and the modern Jews. They're all wrong and worse than wrong. If Jesus' claims are true, then these are deceptions of the evil one. That's pretty politically incorrect, isn't it? I've just wiped out about a half of the world's population or more into saying that they are under the deception of the evil one. If Jesus' claims are true, then what I've just said is true. He's profoundly divisive. If Jesus' claims are untrue, then we Christians are people most to be pitied, wrote the Apostle, for we've believed a lie, we've misrepresented God, and we're still in our sins facing judgment. I've just wiped out the other half of the population. Because Christianity is the biggest of all these religions, and if it's not true, then millions of people are living under a deception of the devil. So the claims of Jesus, both implicit and explicit, mark him out as a blasphemer, for he takes on the role of God, or a lunatic, because he thought he was God, or a fraudster, because he was deceiving people into thinking God was with him when he wasn't. Or indeed, he was the Christ, sent by the Father in heaven to destroy the works of the devil and to save you and me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and that you have sent him for our salvation. We pray for each of us here, Father, that we might know him as our Lord and Saviour and that we, like the disciples of old and like the people who saw those miracles, may not be able to stop telling others of the Great One that you sent to rescue us. And so we pray that we might all know him as Lord and all make him known as Lord. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.